Bell Hummel, the story of Eddie Hummel. Episode 4, Eddie's First and Last Jewish Club. On the 15th of April in 1937, while he was still coaching in both Volendam and Beverwijk, Eddie Hommel was also named the new football coach of Ha E De Ve, or H-E-D-W, a large multi-sport club in the Middenmeer neighborhood of Amsterdam, just a few miles from his home on Amstelkad. Eddie was now the head coach of three teams in three different cities. H-E-D-W would be his first and last coaching job in his own city, and the only time he would be at the helm of what was in effect a Jewish football team. Eddie's new club had been formed in 1931 by the merger of two existing sporting clubs, Hortus, which was purely a football club, and Entracht de Vinnen, a larger multi-sport club, hence H-E-D-W. On the occasion of Eddie's appointment, an announcement in the club newsletter summarized Hommel's impressive accomplishments to date. Soon, the well-known former Ajax player, Eddie Hommel, will start working as a trainer at the Amsterdam 4th Class Club, HEDW. This is not the first club that hopes to take advantage of his wise lessons, for in the season of 1936 to 1937, Hommel brought Dekenemers from the 3rd to the 2nd class, and football club Volendam became champion of the Netherlands under him. HEDW, who celebrated her 25th birthday in 1938, hopes that the Red Blacks will have a lot of young material to offer her board a championship title, something that will not be so impossible with her seven teams. HEDW was not officially a Jewish club, but it was effectively so since every one of its members were Jewish. There were at least two other Jewish football clubs in Amsterdam at the time, AED, playing in the first division, and WV, a posh club for wealthy, mostly but not exclusively Jewish businessmen and bureaucrats. HEDW, located in Amsterdam East, was considered the everyman Jewish club. Its members were mostly laborers, shopkeepers, and tradesmen, and it was by far the largest of the three. When Hommel took over in 1937, the HEDW first team was competing in the fourth division of the KNVB. They played and trained at Sportpark Dryberg, less than a mile from the new Stadion de Mir. The members of HEDW were no doubt excited about their new coach, an Ajax legend with real Amsterdam roots and an already solid record as a coach. But perhaps most important, their new trainer was a fellow Jew. And for his part, Eddie must have loved the idea of training other Jewish players. For the first time in his coaching career, Eddie was able to conduct training sessions within the city of Amsterdam. As usual, training in winter months was limited by weather and darkness. There were no floodlights at the HEDW grounds, so practices were once again held in a nearby school gymnasium. His team focused on fitness and technical ball skills as usual, including juggling, trapping, and head tennis. Somehow, Eddie made it all work. But it must have been hectic, coaching three clubs in three different cities at the same time, all while holding down his day job. But then, in January of 1938, just four days after Eddie's appointment at HEDW, Johanna gave birth to twin boys, Paul and Robert, whose names stood as tributes to their father's American roots. So that spring, Hommel made the sensible decision to part ways with one of his three clubs, 
and he chose to leave to Kenimers. Why did Eddie stick with RKSV, a provincial Catholic club that paid him next to nothing, when more prominent teams closer to home would have eagerly accepted his services? And why give up DeKenemers, an up-and-coming club that had so nearly won promotion to the first division under his leadership? Not to mention the fact that Beverwijk was much easier to get to than Volendam. Maybe Hommel thought that his work at RKSV was just more important, that he somehow recognized the lasting, formative impact he was having on the city and its team. Or maybe Eddie was just loyal to the first club that had ever hired him. For whatever reason, Hommel would serve as coach in Volendam for eight years, And in 1937, the same year he took over at HEDW, Volendam were crowned champions of the Catholic League for the second time in Eddie's tenure. Throughout the 1930s, Eddie played occasionally on the Ajax veterans team, which is today known as Lucky Ajax. Two veterans matches late in the decade would have tragic postscripts during the coming years of war and occupation. In November of 1938, HETW played a friendly against the Ajax veterans at Stadion Demir, and Eddie actually wore the striped shirt of Ajax to play against a team he had trained for the match. Hommel played alongside other legendary Ajax veterans including Wim Andriessen, Johnny Reg, and Jan Van Atres, and he even scored a goal, a rare thing for a player more accustomed to creating goals for others. The match was officially being held to celebrate the 25th anniversary of HEDW, but in practical terms, it was a fundraiser for the Committee for Jewish Refugees, or CJV, which had been formed in 1933 to support Jews entering the Netherlands after fleeing oppression in Germany and farther east. Since its inception, the committee had provided money, jobs, and housing to Jewish refugees. In 1938, it also took on a more bureaucratic role, issuing entry visas and work permits. The committee was largely responsible for determining which Jewish refugees could stay and which would be refused. Those without money, who could not demonstrate the means to support themselves, were almost always sent back, mostly to Germany. Before the war, the CJV rejected 6 out of 10 visa applications from German Jews. After the Kristallnacht pogroms in November of 1938, so many refugees were flooding in from Germany that the Dutch government decided to build a refugee camp in a remote tract of land in the country's northeast, not far from the German border, in a place called Westerbork. Four years later, after the Netherlands had surrendered to Hitler's army, the German authorities converted the camp into the Westerbork Transit Camp to imprison Jews and others awaiting deportation to the east. It stands as a stunning irony that the CJV, which had been created to help Jewish refugees fleeing Nazi persecution, ended up raising more than one million guilders to help pay for the construction and operation of Camp Westerbork. Nearly every single player who had appeared for HEDW in that anniversary fundraiser match against the IX veterans in 1938 would eventually end up a prisoner at Westerbork, as would virtually every member of the CJV. Almost none survived. Almost every single prisoner deported from Westerbork, more than 100,000 in total, were eventually deported east and murdered at Auschwitz and other camps. In the fall of 1939, less than a year before Hitler's conquest and occupation of the country, there was another notable friendly match, this one between AED, the top Jewish club of Amsterdam, and APGS, the top team of the Amsterdam police force. 
it was billed as the city's amateur championship. AED entered as heavy favorites and won easily. After the match, a huge crowd of Jewish supporters gathered outside a cafe on Waterloo Plain to serenade the AED players, who stood on a terrace to acknowledge the cheers. The new Israelish Vikblad called it the largest Jewish national event in Dutch history. Just a few years later, some, if not most, of the players from APGS, the policemen's team, participated in raids to arrest and deport many of those same AED players along with their families. But in April of 1940, times were still pretty good for Eddie, Johanna, and their twin boys. The extra money from coaching allowed the Hommels to move into a larger, nicer apartment at Rienstraat 145 in the Rievenbert district just west of the Amstel River. The new home was a major upgrade, a larger flat with bay windows facing a wide boulevard in an elegant neighborhood. Their happiness would not last long. Although the war was already raging in the east, the Netherlands clung to a fragile truce with Germany. But Hitler's plan for victory required control of the western coastline for defense and as a base of attack against Britain. So on the 10th of May 1940, a swarm of German Messerschmitt long-range bombers was spotted flying west, high over Rotterdam. Residents assumed the Luftwaffe was headed across the channel to bomb England as it had done many times before. But it was a trick. The planes made a U-turn over the North Atlantic and flew in low from the west, avoiding Dutch anti-aircraft guns, which were all placed facing east. The planes dropped bombs on the seat of Dutch government in The Hague and released thousands of paratroopers, the first ever in military history, over the Valkenburg and Achenberg airfields. Then they flew on to Rotterdam and dropped the rest of their bombs on the docklands and industrial plants at the edge of the city. Over the next three days, overwhelmed Dutch soldiers did their best to slow the advance of the German paratroopers, while military commanders negotiated with the German army. But those negotiations were unsuccessful, and on 14 May at 4.30 in the afternoon, the drone of airplanes was again heard over the city of Rotterdam. 90 German HE-111 bombers and dozens of Messerschmitt fighters appeared in loose formations. German ground troops dug in at the outskirts, fired flares into the sky to indicate their positions and avoid friendly fire. As a result, the evening sky was obscured by a vast cloud of red smoke. The German planes burst through the red cloud like demons, flying low over the defenseless city. Rather than waging a targeted and limited strike as some German military commanders had requested, the Luftwaffe conducted an indiscriminate carpet bombing of the city center. The HE-111s released nearly 100 tons of bombs, almost all in the heart of the old city. The residential neighborhood of Kralingen and the medieval city center were utterly destroyed. Fire spread quickly due to a windstorm created by the bombs themselves. Nearly a thousand people died in the bombing and fires. 25,000 homes were destroyed. The next day, when the Germans threatened to do the same to Utrecht, the Dutch government surrendered and the occupation of the Netherlands had begun. Within hours of surrender, German vehicles were rolling down the streets of Amsterdam unopposed. The Dutch government was immediately disbanded and replaced by the Reichskommissariat Nederland, led by an Austrian Nazi, Arthur Seiss Infart. The Reichskommissariat soon began remaking or outlawing all social and professional organizations that were not already under its control. A document in the city archives of Amsterdam indicates that Eddie Hommel submitted two requests for copies of his American birth certificate, in May and again in July. 
There's no indication that Eddie ever received the document. The government, after all, was already under Nazi control. The Reichskommissariat's first explicitly anti-Jewish order was issued on 6 September 1940, stating that Jews were banned from all government employment, including as school teachers and professors, as well as from recreational facilities, hotels, and restaurants. Jews must also surrender their radios. More significantly, all Jews were ordered to register with the occupying authorities no later than January of 1941. In October, all Jewish-owned businesses also had to be registered with the Reichskommissariat. This was in preparation for their eventual seizure. In 1941, the Yutzerad, or Jewish Council, was established by the Reichskommissariat. The council was made up of 20 prominent middle- and upper-class Jewish men of Amsterdam who worked closely with the occupying authorities to maintain order and facilitate compliance by the city's Jewish population. Anyone who wanted to work had to register with the council. If you didn't have a job, maybe because yours had been declared illegal for Jews and given to a Gentile, the council would try to find you a new one. If you already had a job, the council could verify it as legal and issue you a permit. Eddie Hommel registered with the council and was issued a work permit. And as a former star player for Ajax, Eddie was given favorable treatment. Although he was likely still working as a clerk at the grain wholesalers, his registration papers note his profession as sports trainer and stated that he should be exempt from deportation due to his vital work as a sports coach. Somebody on the council was trying to do a favor for the former Ajax star. It wasn't only the Jewish population who were issued special ID cards. In his six-part editorial series, Bamboozling Ourselves, in the New York Times, Documentarian Errol Morris recounts his correspondence with the Dutch Holocaust historian Robert Jan van Pelt, who explained that many of the Aryan residents of Amsterdam were issued Aryan ID cards once they had signed a Declaration of Aryan Ancestry. In a stunningly brave act of defiance, a small group of rebellious artists, known as the Free Artists Society, began issuing forged Aryan cards to Jewish friends and neighbors. This succeeded, at least for a while, in fooling the authorities and helping some Jews to avoid deportation. In the winter of 1941, the occupation government announced a strict curfew for Jews who could no longer be outside after 8 p.m. and must be at the address on their identification cards during curfew hours. If you move to a new house, you must go back to the council and pay a fee to re-register and receive new identity cards. Beginning in the spring of 1942, all Jews in the occupied Netherlands were required to wear a Jewish star in public. The patch must be yellow, of a durable fabric, and a certain size, and must have the letters J-O-O-D stitched into it. Failing to do so in public would result in immediate arrest. The occupational authorities provided lists of shops where the patches could be purchased. It soon became impossible to see people on the streets without automatically thinking of them as either Jew or Gentile, which was the point. Although Jews were not allowed to own or listen to radios, not everyone complied. Some Jews secretly held onto their radios. Others gathered around the radios owned by friendly Gentile neighbors. Each evening, thousands tuned in to pirate broadcasts from the BBC, or from Radio Orange, the Dutch-language program by the government in exile in London. They also listened to the permitted broadcasts, where the news was never good. From the official station, 
listeners learned that Hitler had declared non-Jewish Dutch citizens to be Aryans, kindred members of a master race. This helps to explain why conditions for non-Jews during occupation were relatively pleasant, at least for a while. As Kevin Simpson notes in his book, Soccer Under the Swastika, there were actually two occupations in Holland, one for the average Dutch national, benign for the most part, and one devastating occupation for the Jews. One evening, the official broadcast announced that all German Jews in the Netherlands had been declared stateless. As of that moment, many thousands of German Jews were no longer welcome in Holland and would be sent east to work for the Führer. The massive and relentless deportation of Jews from the Netherlands was now officially underway. Bill Hamel is written and presented by Jim McGow and is produced and edited by Nigel Coutinho. Original music written and performed by Paul Chavez. Artwork by Fred Davis. Additional voices by Travis Friedrich. To see photographs and documents relevant to this story, visit our website at bellhommelpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram via the links on our website. Next time on Bellhommel. Jews out, Gentiles in.